0: If you would, please turn in your Bible to Psalm 13. We are on the third song of our Old Songs in a New Year series. The text can also be found on pages five, just page five, in your bulletin. Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You may be seated. And as we do, let us seek the Lord as we come to his word. Father God, we thank you for texts like this. Because there are days, and today for some might be one of those days where we cry out how long. And God, you are a place of refuge, you are a place of hope. When the burdens and the sorrows of this world, when the burdens and the sorrows of our own heart seem too much to bear. So God, I pray that you would give us hope as we sing, as we hear this song sung for us this morning. We pray that you would be glorified in it, in Christ's name, amen. Psalm 13 is a psalm of lament. Don't think that's too much of a shock for anyone here this morning, as you heard it read. From the moment the psalm begins, David is clearly lamenting the burdens of his soul. He is filled with sorrow, he is filled with trouble. Now this idea or this practice of lamenting is not foreign to us, it's not even foreign to our culture. Many bands, musical bands and artists thrive off of creating songs that express deep sorrow, oftentimes due to a love that has been lost. One of my personal favorite bands essentially found its niche lamenting the relational anguish of teens in the 90s and the early 2000s. My roommates in college and even my wife today when I listen to this band would frequently ask, how can you listen to this as much and not just feel overwhelmingly depressed, not just feel sad all the time? And I admit I've ne- I'd never had an adequate answer and I still don't. There is something about the honesty and the rawness that, that touches an easily triggered heart like my own. But laments reach far beyond just music. Our culture rightly laments. It laments death, injustice, and violence, and the many other ways in which life just feels wrong. The summer of 2020 honestly felt like a summer of lament as we had the virus, the social unrest, the heavy division just kind of swirling around all of us. And at its most simplest, lament is to passionately express grief or sorrow. And while such lamenting in such a simple form can be right and even healthy, psychologists I think would argue that it's good for us to lament to express our grief and sorrow, the Psalms take lament a little bit further than simply a cathartic exercise. Biblical lament is not expressing sorrow just for the sake of expressing sorrow, nor is it trying to express sorrow to hopefully motivate ourselves or to motivate one another to do better, be better. True lament, as we see here in Psalm 13, is actually an exercise of faith. It is an expression of dependence, an expression of hope, even in the midst of grief and sorrow. As one writes about Psalm 130, one, sorry one, Psalm 13, "Lament takes very seriously God's promise that He cares for us." Yes, it has certainly given voice to the yearning and the aching of our souls for a world that is renewed. Yes, it can be raw and sometimes teetering on all-out despair. But at the same time, it's carrying all that baggage, carrying all those burdens to the only place where hope is promised. It is taking it to the throne of grace with the expectation, the hopeful expectation, that the Lord will act. And so in Psalm 13, it shows us that even in deep sorrow, the Lord remains the hope of his people. Deep sorrow and suffering, unfortunately, are what all of us are forced to face and endure in a sin-cursed world awaiting its redemption. We can't avoid it. Sometimes it's acute short-lived, other times it's intense, even chronic, seemingly unended. But for the Lord, it doesn't make a difference. He is the hope in all our sorrows, our troubles and our grief. And he invites us, he invites you and me to come and to bring them, and then he promises to draw near as we do. For an outline, you'll see it in the bulletin, Psalm 13 actually breaks down into three couplets, three verses of two. So we'll take each one as a point. The first, we'll see the lament of the soul in verses 1 and 2. Then we'll see the longing of the sorrowful in verses 3 and 4. And then finally, we'll see the love of the Savior in verses 5 and 6. And we'll see that there's actually a movement in this lament. This movement is not to show us how to lament. It's not to, if you do it this way, this will happen. But it's rather to show what happens when we do, when we lament in full dependence and hope in the Lord our God, we will leave singing as David does. And so Psalm 13 opens though with the lament of the soul. In keeping with that strict definition I mentioned just a few minutes earlier, David passionately gives voice to his grief and his sorrow. And we see it in those two very familiar words that we read all throughout the Old Testament How long? Until when? Until where? David repeats it four times. It starts each of his little phrases in these two verses. It shows that David is in this deep agony and sorrow, wondering how long it will last. And on the one hand, how long is a regular part of life, both in the very serious and also in the very much less serious. Travel from one place to another makes us wonder how long. For students in the throes of a busy semester, that semester makes us cry out, how long? Being a sports fan makes some cry out, how long? Just this past Tuesday I ran into a Georgia fan at Kroger, sorry to our Alabama fans here this morning. I knew he was a Georgia fan because he had a rather large G blazed out on his chest, on his shirt, but then he had an even larger smile on his face. And when I said to him, congratulations, you must be having a very good Tuesday, he joyfully confessed, you have no idea how long we have waited for this. And in talking with him a little bit, I found out that he and his wife were actually in college 41 years earlier in 1980, the last time Georgia won. And seeing as I was born in 86, I can only concur that that is a long time, longer than I've been around. But also with far more serious matters, we often find ourselves crying out, how long? How long will this chronic sickness, this pain that I'm dealing with endure? How long this grief from the death of a loved one or a close friend? How long must I be burdened by the anguish of a wayward child? Or sometimes just the throes of parenting? How long will this depression last how long will i suffer at the workplace or at school or in places in general simply because i love and seek to honor the lord in all that i do it's not wrong for god's people to cry out how long in times of sorrow in pain and anguish we're we're invited to cry out how long it's natural it's good doesn't matter if it's a short-lived season or a long season. We can, like David, honestly say it has been long enough. We can confess when we've reached our breaking points. We can tell God about the turmoil that's going on in our hearts, our souls, in our mind, and in our strength. But we see it's not just a matter of time that, it, that is building David's sorrow the depth of his sorrow is actually flowing heavily from this feeling of isolation and abandonment. Listen to what he says after saying, how long? He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It's easy for us sometimes to read this and think David is in some way being accusatory. We kind of want to nudge David on the side and be like, hey, hey buddy, you might want to dial it down a little bit. you You're you're, you're treading on, on, on dangerous ground here. But we should be comforted by this. Because David's expressing what many of us feel day in and day out. Especially when we're in seasons of sorrow and pain. We feel alone. We feel isolated. Like there's no one else who understands. Like there's no one else who's listening. And these feelings for David are significant. Because he knows what the Old Testament told him. Being remembered by the Lord is the key indicator of being in relationship with God. Noah was remembered by the Lord as the waters of judgment rained down on the earth. Abraham was remembered by the Lord as the fires of judgment rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Rachel was remembered as she endured the sorrow of her own barrenness in the face of her sister's fruitfulness. But probably the most emphatic remembering that we see is at the beginning of Exodus in chapter 2, verse 24, where Israel is lamenting under the burden of Egypt. And Moses writes these words And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So we see if if being remembered emphasizes the blessing of relationship, then for David, being forgotten emphasizes the absence of such relationship. And he feels this this absence heavy. And worse still, he feels like he's been altogether abandoned with this picture of hiding God's face. We know the face of God shining on his people is the blessing that Aaron would have pronounced amongst the people. And the hidden face of the Lord is the curse for the wicked. It leads to dismay as we see in places like Psalm 30 and Psalm 104. It's that sign of forsakenness. Which we know because it's what Jesus declared on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your face from me? So we see in his lamenting, David is not simply lamenting the hook the end of this external and internal sorrow, he's lamenting this internal feeling he has that God has left him altogether. And we can agree with David that the experience of God's abandonment is real and painful at times. We can long for the peace that comes via the lifted up face of the Lord shining upon us yet again. And we can agree with David and ask the Lord to bring it to an end. But then as verse 2 closes, though, we we also see that David is lamenting this, this certain sense of defeat that he has. He says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We see David is lamenting the exhaustion that comes with grief. And we see that grief makes a miserable counselor. All it does is shine brighter, the pain that we feel. And worse still, the enemies of David have taken notice. These enemies could be physical human enemies. We know that David had an abundant supply of them. But the full psalm suggests, though, that this enemy is actually death itself. David is likely sick or ill to the point of death, which only increases that sense of loneliness. And then on top of that, if David were to die, this would lead to his actual enemies triumphing. There would be no shortage of celebrations at the demise of David. And so all of this is weighing heavily upon David, his heart, and his soul. But notice, though, even with this crushing and unyielding weight, what does David do? Even in this sense that God has abandoned him, that God has left him, where does David go? He goes to the Lord. He cries even to the one who he feels like has turned his face from him. He cries to the one that even though his heart tells him other, his, his soul tells him, I can trust this one. And then he lays all of it there. His sorrow, his grief, his feeling of forgottenness, his fear of death. And this should encourage us to pour out our souls to the Lord. Even in those moments where we feel like he's not listening. With the youth on Sunday evenings, we've started working through the, the short book, Persistent Prayer, by Guy Richard. And among the helpful things that he writes in this book, the most helpful for me was, was the simple reminder of what our shorter catechism says about prayer. It says, prayer is offering up the desi- our desires unto God. And then the catechism even even references Psalm 62.8 as the proof text where it says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. God is not afraid of your emotions. He's not afraid of your frustrations, your sorrow, or your pain. But instead he invites you to come into his presence with it. He welcomes the laments of the souls of his people. He knows that things aren't right. He knows there's tremendous hurt, both internal and external. And we can trust that what God said in Exodus 2 remains true today. He sees and he knows. Pouring out your hearts before him as your profession of faith, or pour out your hearts ...before him as a profession of faith. That it is true even when it may not feel like it. Lament is an exercise of trust. So trust the Lord by pouring out your soul before his throne. And then from this lament in verses 1 and 2... ...there's a move then to the longing of the sorrowful in verses 3 and 4. David doesn't simply stop and tell God how bad things are. He pleads with the Lord to act... His lament, if you will, leads him to prayer, to petition. And this is actually where most modern laments stop. Most modern laments lament to feel good, to get something off of our chests. There's no expectation of anything more, it's simply a therapeutic exercise. But for David and for us here this morning, lament is just the beginning. It moves us forward. As one commentator writes, lament is pointless unless it culminates in prayer. And we hear David's prayer in verses 3 and 4. And we see that it's actually his lament that kind of shapes what it is that he asks the Lord to do. In his first ask, David wants an end to this feeling of abandonment and forgottenness. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. He confesses, yeah, the sorrow that I feel is bad. The certain death that is looming me in the face is, is horrible. But the worst sorrow that I feel is the sense that God has forsaken me, that he has turned his face from me. I can't bear that anymore. That word, consider, that word rendered considered in the English is most literally just saying, look at me, which is actually how the NIV translated it. It reflects David's deep desire for the Lord to stop this apparent hiding of his face and to look at David. Because David knows there is a profound comfort and delight found in the face of a loved one looking at us. I'll use my son Everett as a proof. He's one week shy of eight months, but Everett enjoys this, I think it's a game, where he will literally just sit there and stare at Bethany and I, until we meet his stare with our own. And if you know Everett or you've stared at Everett, you know he's a pretty good starer. He's got like blue steel going on. He will hold it for the longest time. And sometimes he'll sit quietly and stare and it's a little bit creepy. You like kind of sense there's something going on over here. And you look and you realize it's an eight-month-old just staring at you. But other times he will actually start to moan and cry until we turn and face And look at our son. And as soon as we do, as soon as the gaze of mom and dad meet the gaze of our son, his face gets plastered with the biggest, and I'm biased, but the cutest smile you will ever see. It goes from the top of one ear, not here, the top of an ear, all the way over to the top of the other. Without words, because he doesn't speak, he is screaming at us to look at me, look at me, look at me. Sometimes he simply needs it. Sometimes he just enjoys the game. But the result is always the same. He gets a profound comfort and delight at the gaze of his mom and dad. David is begging for this when he says to God, consider me, look at me. He's begging for the Lord to do what he's promised, to lift up your countenance upon me, let your face shine on me again. Because he knows there's a peace that is offered to his soul when the Lord does this. And then David also pleased for the Lord to answer. Give me a word. Assure me that I'm not forgotten. Assure me that you hear me. We see that David is simply longing in the deepest places of his soul for fellowship with the Lord his God. That's what he wants far and above Far and beyond the deliverance, which we'll get to. He certainly wants deliverance. But more than that, he wants fellowship. Because in the midst of his sorrow and suffering, it's felt absent. In the midst of his sorrow, it's felt impossible. How many times have you and I felt in similar states? Our suffering has us longing for fellowship. But all we feel is absence. Absence. And discouragement grows, and then with tears we may cry out, look at me, please. Just hoping for a sense of that smile of our Father. But all these words, these pleas for fellowship, they should encourage us that God is still there, that his face is still shining, even in the clouds of our sorrow. So we can plead with him to draw near. We can plead with him when we're alone. We can plead with him when we're in the company of God's people. We can plead with him when the sorrow feels to be at its worst. But the second thing that we see David ask for, and the most obvious, is deliverance. He simply wants the sorrow to end. He says, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. The picture painted here is, is a pretty grim one. Again, we don't know what David's condition is, but it's draining him of life. His eyes are one step closer to closing for good. Back in those days, the eyes were the signal of health. Bright eyes, opened eyes, they signaled a, a, well, a positive well-being, a good state. Red eyes, tired, closed eyes, they signaled grief, sickness, and soon to be death." So when David pleads to lighten up my eyes, he's not simply saying open them so I can see. He's begging for mercy and for healing, to be spared from death. He says death is preparing its victory dance. The enemies are circling. As David's on the brink of destruction, his enemies are striking up the band. They expect David to succumb to his condition. And they stand ready to reap the benefits. And like any reasonable person, David doesn't want this to happen. He says, Deliver me from such death. For not only is death the end of our earthly existence, but for David it's the end of tasting God's goodness amongst the living. It would also give the wicked the reason to rejoice, which David so desperately doesn't want to see. He wants to see the righteous exalted. He wants to see God's covenant faithfulness to his people. He wants to see healing and restoration. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to follow David's lead here. Yes, lament your soul as we saw earlier, but allow that lament to lead you to prayer. Lead you to plead with God, to tell him what you need, to tell him what you want. To cry out to him. Do what Jesus told us to do. Ask, seek, and knock. And then when you're done, do it again. And then when you're done that, do it once more. Some of you here have been pleading with the Lord for years. For a whole variety of things. You've asked the Lord to deliver you from pain and from sickness. From sorrow, from grief. You have asked and you have asked and you have asked. You've been persistent like that widow... That Jesus talked about. Let me encourage you to keep asking. Give him no rest as Isaiah tells the people in Isaiah 62. For the Lord hears and the Lord will answer. But also be encouraged that your persistence is an example to the rest of us. Particularly those of us who are younger. Because I will admit I am terrible at persistence. I'm not good at giving God no rest. I may ask him once, maybe twice, maybe for a week, maybe a month. And then I think he's given up, so I give up. Instead, may we, like David, all be encouraged to persevere in expressing the longing of our souls. May we do it privately in our prayers. May we do it as our, in our families. As each of our families have burdens upon burdens that we bring to the Lord on a daily basis. And then may we do it together as a church family. There's ample opportunity we have here to come and to plead with the Lord. We're here every Wednesday night at 530 to pray. Join us. Join us Sunday nights, the third Sunday night of the month, next Sunday, to plead with the Lord. To ask him to consider us, to look upon us, to answer us, to deliver us from sorrow, from sickness, From the feelings of isolations that we have sometimes even as a church beg him to shine his face on us so that we may know the sweet fellowship that is ours because he is our God and we are his people this pleading this longing of David's sorrowful soul then leads and ends surprisingly with rejoicing rejoicing in the love of the Savior we see this in verses 5 and 6 I find it personally remarkable that David closes this psalm the way he does. If the psalm stopped after verse 2, we would expect simply David to simply close out his days feeling alone, abandoned, and defeated. Even if we moved to verse 4 and that's where it ended, we wouldn't expect anything different. Because David at the end of verse 4 is still weak and battered. Humanly speaking, David is a goner. His last words very easily could have been this lament and a last-ditch effort for the Lord to deliver. And who knows, maybe David actually thought they would be his last words. But the song continues. Don't miss that. There is a verse 5 and a verse 6. And we see that all this lamenting, all this longing that David brings to the Lord, it results, it produces something wonderful: a renewed confidence in the Lord. And in the reality of his presence. The but I that we see is emphatic, especially in in light of the way verse 4 ends. Verse 4 ends with David saying what the enemies are saying I am shaken. But then verse 5 ends with but I. David is tottering, he is on the brink of complete disaster. He should have no reason for confidence. But he's trusting he's confident not in himself not even in a better situation that's coming but in the love of his God he says but I have trusted in your steadfast love the steadfast love is is a term we're familiar with it's not an emotional feeling it's not even a general fondness of someone or something it is that unfailing loyalty of a covenant relationship, which is why the psalmist in Psalm 136, 26 times can say, his steadfast love endures forever. It is a love that is fixed by covenants. David says that trusting in the Lord is his lifeline. It is the anchor for his struggling soul. For that steadfast love declares that God is near even when it doesn't feel like it. That God's face is still shining even when it feels like his face is turned in the other direction. The love of God endures even the anguish and the torment in the souls of his people. And we see that they taste it afresh as they come to him. How kind and gracious is our God. That even when we come to him with our complaints and our sorrows and even our borderline accusations, he demonstrates his love for us. He lets us taste it yet again. No, he may not change what we're facing immediately. We aren't given reason to think that David walked up and away from this this moment suddenly healed. We may not even get the assurance of relief. But we will get the promise of his steadfast love. We will receive the assurance of where our trust will not come up empty. We will be reminded of where our hope and our confidence lies in the steadfast, covenant keeping love of our God. The love of God had not failed David yet, it had not failed Israel yet, and it would not fail them even in their darkest of seasons. And the same goes for us. The steadfast love of the Lord has been with us as individuals, as a church, each and every step of the way. And it will continue as long as the Lord sits enthroned in heaven above as the faithful covenant-keeping God. And spoiler alert, he will always sit on that throne. He's not going anywhere. The steadfast love of the Lord will endure the darkest night of the soul and will see us to the very end. We have reason to trust in it like David. But trusting in the love also assures David of the deliverance that he asked for. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David makes it simple. He's expecting to be delivered. He doesn't know when. It could be hours or days or weeks or even years. It could even be that for him, salvation isn't going to be this side of heaven. But David is certain that trusting in the steadfast love of the Lord means that deliverance will one day come. And of this, David can rejoice. Of this, he can sing. Of this, his heart can trade in the sorrow for joy. We see that David's enemies, they may be rejoicing over his pending doom, but David is rejoicing in the Lord's pending deliverance. He's banking on it. What a difference we see in just a few short sentences. Sorrow has turned to joy. But David is not only rejoicing in salvation, he is outright singing altogether. His lips cannot keep from from singing the praises for the Lord and all his goodness. That's how this psalm closes. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. No, David is not somehow negating his suffering. He's not looking back and saying, wow, I... (laughs) Kind of dialed it up there. Maybe maybe I was a little bit over the top. He's not embarrassed about the way he sounded in verses 1 through 4. His weeping and his sorrow were real. They were long. They were exhausting. But because he has confessed where his trust lies on the steadfast love of the Lord, he can now look back and sing with confidence, sing with boldness, and say that the Lord has been good. He has dealt bountifully with me. He has given me blessing upon blessing, even as I'm sitting here in sorrow and grief. He can see that God has not changed. He can see that he has not abandoned David, no matter how strongly David feels like he has. No, he has poured out his love upon David again and again and again. And he will continue to do it all the days of his life. In the days of sorrow, in the days of joy and we have such similar confidence we confessed it earlier this morning using the words of Romans 8 particularly 30 verses 38 and 39 where it says for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our lord That's the love that we trust in. That's the love that leads us to rejoice and leads us to sing. It's our confidence. We can trust in that love because we know this side of the cross that has been abundantly poured out on us in Jesus Christ. He is our salvation today and for eternity. He is the one who tasted and knows the grief that we taste and that we know so intimately. But he's also the one who actually tasted and knew forsakenness so that we would not. And so he's the one then who invites us to bring our sorrows and our grief to him as our great high priest. Tim read those words at our call to worship this morning, inviting us to do so. But Jesus is also the one who's defeated death. So death will never say to us, I have prevailed over him. It has no sting. And in Christ, we're also the one that we have no fear of one day being fully and finally shaken. We have the confidence that we will always be heard. And therefore, we can walk rejoicing. Our agony can lead to songs of praise. And it happens as we cry out to him. It happens as we draw near to him, as we plead with him. As we trust in his steadfast love. May we learn to sing even in the midst of our sorrow. May we learn to rest in the salvation of the Lord, to rejoice in his abundant goodness. May we direct our hearts to the love of our Savior, see his goodness, even in the simple fact that we have a place to go when our souls tell us there's nowhere. That we have someone who's listening when our souls tell us nobody cares. May we learn to trust and rejoice in the love of our Savior. As we gather this morning, we come, honestly, with much to lament. There is a great deal of issues for which we cry out, how long? Today is the Sanctity of Life Sunday, a Sunday where we as a church do cry out, How long will our society and our culture just have a complete disregard for life in the womb? But it's also a Sunday where we cry out how long will our culture have a complete disregard in life at all stages. In the middle and on the way out. We cry out how long as we see injustice and evil and wickedness all around us. We cry out how long as the numbers are spiking yet again and COVID is surging. Yesterday alone gave us multiple reasons to cry out how long. If you paid attention to the news, there was a tsunami in Tonga destroying thousands of villages and people. Jason mentioned the hostage crisis in Texas. Read about the persecution of Christ's church. All of us leaves us indeed to cry out, "How long, O Lord?" And then we get all the stuff that we're feeling internally. That's just all the stuff that's out there. The physical pain that we endure, the chronic sickness, the anguish, the grief, the sorrow. The list goes on. We cry out, "How long, O Lord?" There is, and there never will be, a shortage of suffering, sorrow, and grief as we await the return of Christ and his making of all things new. But yet, there will never be a day when we, as the people of God, are without hope, or without a place to go with our cries of how long. Because our Lord stands ready to listen to us, ready to hear us. He stands ready to draw near, even as we feel as though he's absent. And he stands ready to remind us of the great love that he has for us. And that he is a place where we can trust. He is a place where we have an unshaking hope. Brothers and sisters, even in the midst of deep sorrow, the Lord remains the hope of his people. Let's pray. Father God, we cry out to you how long. There is much that burdens our weary souls and our hearts this morning. Some of it spoken, God, some of it just very much private that we've buried deep. But God, we give you thanks that you are the God who hears the cries of your people. May we learn to lament, may we learn to express the longing of our souls, and then out of that, God, may we learn to rejoice. May we learn to sing of your steadfast love, to sing and to tell and to proclaim that you have been abundantly good to us even in the midst of our sorrows. What a testimony that is to a world trapped in sorrow and grief. That there's a place to go, there's a reason to rejoice. God, may you be the hope of your people this day and every day until Christ, you come and bring us to the place where sorrow and anguish and grief are gone forever. And we pray this in his name. Amen. If you would please take your